Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, Carly Hartsman of Asheville indie rock band Wednesday talks about songwriting, place, and spending a lot of time with a band on tour. Human connection, even though it's really difficult for me, is probably the most uh, like nourishing and important thing of life. And in one Kentucky community, a workshop series is reinvigorating the nearly lost art of quilting there. One of the things that I was concerned about was that this tradition in the African-American uh, community was dying out. Also, Abe Partridge makes podcasts about a uniquely Appalachian form of art, religious music heard only in snake handling churches. It's always been music first. That was my that was my goal. But I mean, I will tell you this: if it was just about the music, I wouldn't still be going. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. You're hearing Chosen to Deserve, a track on Wednesday's 2023 album, Rats All God. Wednesday's based in Asheville, North Carolina, and consists of singer Carly Hartsman and her partner Jake Lenderman on guitar, Zandy Chelmus on lap steel, Margot Schultz on bass, and Alan Miller playing drums. Wednesday made big waves with Rats All God when it came out in April. The music site Pitchfork gave it 8.8 out of 10 and named it Best New Music. Before Wednesday set out on a big European tour, I caught up with Carly Hartsman. Carly Hartsman, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. When I saw y'all at play at Cat's Cradle this summer, you talked about the importance of remaining in the South and staying where you're at. So what compels you to stay in Western North Carolina there in Asheville? Um, well, I mean, the more places I see, the more I'm convinced that it's the most beautiful place on the earth and my favorite place on the earth. Like the more I travel, the more I'm affirmed in that. So I genuinely do just love the surroundings. Um, I like the culture. I think mm-hmm. it's like, I think Southern culture is like one of the like most intact from over the years. Like it tends to stay really like, cause that's one of the things about people being conservative. Like they want to retain a lot of historical things. Like there's a lot of negative stuff that goes along with being conservative, but there's also like a preservation of culture in a way. Um, And so when it's not a negative thing, it's actually kind of an interesting thing. Like I went into an antique store the other day in Burnsville, I was getting my license renewed. And uh, I don't know, there's like this super old guy and this lady was talking to him about all the stuff that she needed fixed in her house. And he was like, yeah, I can fix literally all of that, like antique lamps and antique like this and that. And I just feel like a lot of that stuff is still intact here. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people who can't stay here for fear of their life, obviously. Um, And I totally understand them feeling like they need to escape, whether it's because they're queer or something uh, or they're black um, with the police violence here. But if you're not scared for your life and you're willing to fight for those who can't, I think it's actually a really good place with a lot of room to be productive. And there's a ton of grassroots organization and people who are so passionate here about change. And yeah, just the best food, too. I mean, they don't got Bojangles anywhere else, so why would I live anywhere else? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, you know, there's so much about the band resonates with me from its sound to the uh, apparent musical influences. But the songwriting is just so incredible and it grabs me. It's it's impressionistic and it's it's visual and it's rooted in place, but it also feels universal. So how do your surroundings and experiences there make your way into your music and your songs? Um, well, I, I mean, with any writing, I just think I'm impressed with people that are able to describe their own life in a way that captures how original everyone's life is. I, I, it's harder than you would think just to like find the things that make you you and your life what it is. And I think if you really I mean, it's a muscle, obviously, and I've really worked it since I was a high schooler writing. Uh, yeah, I just did poetry for a really long time and tried to find the little things that were interesting to me. And it tended to be outside of myself and my own. I, I don't know. I, I find it really easy to get bored with my own thoughts and my own brain. So I kind of look outside myself. That's the one 
thing that I think I feel like a lot of people bring up about my writing that it's kind of like a spectator um and then yeah I just try to look really closely about what's going on that is specific to where I'm sitting or where I'm at at that moment and once you build that muscle like it just comes to you like I find writing very it's the easiest part of the whole process just because it's happening around you all the time if you like live in a place that you're inspired by that's why I am so attached to North Carolina and Asheville there's so many songs I love on this on this record but I wanted to ask you about Bath County Partly because I'm from Clifton Forge, which is adjacent, basically. But, you know, Bath County sprawls between eastern Tennessee and western Virginia, and it's got all these memorable lines and, and visual images. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that song? Yeah, well, I was, um, Jake's mom is from Bath County, and she likes to go every, like, once a year, maybe once every two years, just to visit and kind of go around your old stomping grounds and uh, they'll rent a house and we'll go out there. And so a lot of the visuals from that are from the drive up there. Uh, we stopped at, I just saw like a high school football game going on. And I mean, it was the kind of game that happens around here where you can just walk in kind of um, and watch. And there was a kid drinking a fan or uh, maybe a Gatorade or maybe a Fanta. I can't remember, but it was like fluorescent red and Fanta sounded better so I went with that it might have been a Gatorade but yeah the other kind of section of that song about the guy who overdosed in his car was about something me and Jake saw on our way to Dollywood we were gonna go run around and try to have a good fun time but on our way there we stopped at a Chick-fil-a and the guy was like surrounded by cops uh I thought I was seeing a dead body for the first time but luckily he sat up but it took him a really long time and yeah, and I was just struck by those two things. They had a like similar tone, and I put them into the same song. That's how a lot of my stuff is written. Let's hear some of that song, Bath County. I can walk on water I can raise the dead We join So y'all have just come off this long national tour and you're getting ready to head to Europe. How is traveling and going on the road affect your perspective on home and where you live? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're still figuring that out. I think in the long run, success is, to us is really going to mean that we're able to spend more time at home. Right now, we're not really able to do that. But whenever I talk to my bandmates, their goals in a lot of ways, except our drummer, Alan. Alan loves being out on the road. He's a total road dog, <laughs> um, but everyone else um, is ideally we would be able to do a month's worth of touring instead of six months of touring or whatever, or eight months, whatever we've been doing and be able to sustain a life that's comfortable at home for most of our time. Because yeah, Zandy just built a farm on his property and he, it's really hard for him to be away right now. And of course, like your partner, like I'm lucky because I have Jake out there and he's my romantic partner, but everyone else is away from their loved ones. And I don't know. Yeah, it's really hard. So I think we all just really like our dream would be to be able to spend the majority of our time in the place we love the most, which is Asheville. And then and I we love traveling. We love playing shows. But like, yeah, it's such a it's a pretty intense lifestyle. Y'all have had such a big year this year with, you know, the album coming out, the the big sold out tours. 
even Jake's got his solo stuff, and I know you're working on some solo stuff too. What wisdom have you taken away from these experiences you're having? Gosh, yeah. I mean, I learn something every day with, I mean, I'm mostly just like, because I'm a huge introvert. There's no way I would have the type of human connection that I have with my bandmates, the kind that comes from spending 24 hours with a group of people a day. <laughs> um, and it just really shows me that human connection, even though it's really difficult for me, is probably the most uh, like nourishing and important thing of life. And another thing I've learned is just a lot of self-care stuff. I'm still figuring that out because I don't drink at home or really at all, but on tour, it's kind of like necessary for me to get on stage sometimes so I'm trying to figure out my relationship with that and uh, I go to the sauna a lot when I can on tour if they have one in like a bigger city or um and then a lot of musicians I feel like end up being like workout people and run when they are on a tour bus they like run during the day and I think that's something I'll have to start implementing um I never really understood why so many music like older musicians were like such juice heads but like I understood like yeah like you kind of feel like shit on tour if you don't do that um because there's so much exposure to I mean just not the best food and a lot of drugs and alcohol which are fun um and I like to partake but you also got to balance that out with um taking care of yourself what are y'all working on next well Jake's album's gonna be coming out um or announced I don't even know when the release date is and then we're our next album is written. Uh, we haven't really practiced it as a band yet, but all of my songs are ready. Uh, and it's mostly just about finding time to practice them and then record them. So that's what we'll, it takes forever for that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, that's something I really want to like reaffirm to our audience too. Like, cause the thing I hate most is when a band is received well and then pivots in another direction or kind of breaks under the pressure and just doesn't release any more good music. And I've been so intense about not letting that um, really affect how I write uh, any good or bad press. Um, but I just feel really this, all the songs are still, they feel the same to me as before. Like, I feel like I'm still the same person writing. Um, that's what I've been trying to keep intact. But yeah, next one's written. Uh, just trying to figure out when to get it all down. Awesome. Well, Carly Hartsman, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. That was Carly Hartsman, singer and guitar player from Asheville Band Wednesday. Its newest album is Rats All God. I interviewed its producer, Alex Ferrer, back in June. You can find that show and all our back episodes at wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia. I've spent the last week going through some of my mother's possessions. I tend to get most excited about her many, many quilts, some inherited from older generations. And my family is hardly the only one in Appalachia where quilts are handed down and treasured. And while some other traditional arts have faded, people have never really stopped quilting. But the tradition can be patchy. Emily Jones Hudson noticed fewer quilters in her hometown of Hazard, Kentucky, especially among African Americans. So she created a workshop series to encourage people to quilt again and recapture some history. Folkways reporter Capri Cafaro went to Hazard and brings us this story. I'm at a quilt shop in downtown Hazard. A group of four African-American women are gathered between a few sewing tables. They're chatting about quilts they have in the works. Thread my needle. <laughs> Look at and this. And then I got a green one. That's beautiful. Pink one, I think you saw it. These women have been meeting at this shop for the past several months, and they've been making a quilt together. It's the first quilt any of them has ever made. We didn't really know what we were doing until we sat around and started talking about what was important to us, and it just kind of unfolded. That's Sandra Jones. While Sandra had never made a quilt, she did have a lot of sewing experience from making clothes. Still, there was a learning curve for her and the others. Rebecca Cornett is one of the women who helped Sandra make the group quilt. Rebecca says it was both exciting and emotional to watch the quilt come together. We eventually started cutting the fabric and, and putting it together. And I'd come in and there'd be piece hanging on the wall and I'd go, oh my God, oh my God. And then the reality hit. 
you know, this is the vision of the class that we're going to put on the quilt. Together, the group crafted a quilt that tells a powerful story. A piece of fabric from Ghana is at the center of the quilt. It depicts a woman working. She's surrounded by fabric in varying shades of green printed with mountains. At the top of the quilt are orange and yellow strips of fabric that create a sunrise. At the bottom are outlines of faces in shades of brown, floating in a sea of blue. Sandra says the quilt symbolizes the connection between Africa and Appalachia. In the water, you see heads floating. These are actually slaves who were thrown overboard. The mountains kind of represent Appalachian mountains because we were tying in Africa and Appalachia uh, culture. Sandra says the sunrise at the top represents a new dawn for African Americans as they transcend struggle. When she finished sewing the sun rays, the quilt was finally complete. Sandra says she breathed a sigh of relief. It was intense from beginning to end. It was like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. The women in this group are from the Hazard area. While this is the first quilt any of them made, they all grew up around quilt making. Katie Glover is in her 80s. She remembers watching her mother and grandmother quilt by hand. I would watch them sit around and watch them make quilts. They would have this old quilting frame that would be hanging from the ceiling. And all the neighbors would come and help them sew. And they sewed by hand. I grew up by watching my mom, helping my mom sew and and quilt. Uh, I would help her cut, I would help her iron, I would help her uh, do other little things like markings. That's Sandra again, and this is her sister Emily Jones Hudson. I I remember my mom sewing all the time, but you see I never had that interest. Quilting wasn't something these women pursued in their adult life. It seemed to skip their generation. Most were too busy balancing work and family. A few years ago, Emily noticed that people weren't quilting as much as when she was a child, especially within Hazard's African-American community. It's a big thing in the Appalachian culture. It's a big thing in the African-American culture. And um, one of the things that I was concerned about was that this tradition in the African-American community was dying out. And that's why Emily started these quilting workshops known as the Stories Behind the Quilt. The workshops are a project of the Southeast Kentucky African American Museum and Cultural Center. So far, the women have made two quilts and have plans to make one more. Sandra noticed the participants' quilt-making confidence grew between the first workshop series and the second. Everybody was a little hesitant during the first workshop because they, they had never used a sewing machine. and They had never quilted or, or sewn anything. The second time around, you know, they were more excited about it. They were like, okay, I'll iron, I'll sew. You know, they volunteered. It seems that the stories behind the quilt workshops have reinvigorated an interest in quilt making within Hazard's black community, just as Emily had hoped. Folks that ain't never quilted before, ain't sewed before, they're coming out on the other side of these workshops uh, inspired. Um, you know, Sister Katie done bought a machine and it's, it's making quilts, you know, like she's a quilt factory. <laughs> Indeed, Katie is a quilt factory. She's now made four quilts and has started two more. She has a specific reason she's making so many. These quilts that I'm making today, they're going to be my grandbabies. Oh. I'm going to give them to my grandbabies. I've got seven grandbabies. Quilts weren't the only thing to come out of these workshops. During the process, Emily says the women also shared and documented stories of their lives. One workshop, you know, as we, we were quilting, and um, the topic just came up of, of black businesses that used to be here in the area. Another workshop, we talked about black churches. We're trying to get these things documented because if we don't get the history documented with each passing generation, it's like we, we never were here. Rebecca thinks that sharing stories about making quilts with her kids is helping spark new interest in the younger generation. Now, when Rebecca's children visit her, they ask to come to the quilt shop. They want to come down to see what I'm talking about. So I think this is only the beginning of getting history uh, being talked about, young people being interested, and uh, I just think we, it's the beginning of something good. 
more and more young people are becoming interested in the project. In a video posted online, one little girl visited the quilt shop to see the new quilt the group made. And this is the front. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, as the workshops continue, there will be a chance for new people to join the process. They'll continue the work started by this group of women, sustaining Hazard's tradition of quilt making one stitch at a time. In Hazard, Kentucky, this is Capri Cafaro for Inside Appalachia. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. The stories behind the quilt workshop videos are archived at the Southeast Kentucky African American Museum and Culture Center. You can find a link on our website, wvpublic.org. Later in the show, the religious music heard in Snake Canyon churches. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Appalachian school systems have struggled for years with attracting and retaining enough school bus drivers. Things got even worse during the labor crunch coming out of the pandemic. In West Virginia, the shortage of school bus drivers resulted in some bus routes being canceled and parents scrambling to get their kids to school. WVPB's Randy Yoey spoke with three school transportation directors about the challenges they face and what can help relieve the problem. Eric Kiesecker is executive director of the Berkeley County Schools Transportation Department. He has 240 bus routes that need to be covered twice a day, every school day. He's canceling at least three routes daily. Each route averages 50 to 55 students. He says it's the worst he's seen in his 17 years on the job. That means we have 15 vacancies uh, that you know we start off with every day. And, and then uh, we, we have a few substitutes, but most of those are retired bus drivers that only want to work a couple of days a week. Um, so, um, basically, we have zero substitutes uh, to put on any absences. Before the school year started, Raleigh County Schools Transportation Director Greg Bakesian had unusually low numbers in summer bus driver classes, had several drivers that left for other opportunities, and the usual retired bus drivers that filled in the gaps were not coming forward. We had some folks with some family emergencies, and we had some folks with some medical issues. So uh, it kind of, it was like a perfect storm there right as school was starting. And we have about 120 bus routes each day. Um, so with, with not having a, a full list of full-time drivers, you know, we have to, and we don't have a full list of subs either. And so there's about five or six runs every day that, uh, that we're not going to be able to cover. And that's if, that's if everybody works. Keysecker says Berkeley County parents on canceled bus routes have stepped up. A lot of parents have developed a, a carpooling system uh, to get the kids to school. However, if um, there isn't a ride for that child, then the child stays home and they get their uh, work for the day off of uh, our website. Bakesian says other Raleigh County bus drivers try to pick up second routes, but that creates confusion. Um, especially the younger grades, you know, a lot of a lot of the elementary kids, they, they know they ride a certain bus number. And if another bus picks them up, it, it creates some confusion for the, for the child, uh, which, you know, in turn creates confusion for the parents. David Baber is Transportation Director for the West Virginia Department of Education. He says statewide there's about 4,000 buses, about 29,000 drivers. But he liked what he heard about the Berkeley County parent carpools. That's great. I mean, if they are. Uh, at least we're getting the students to getting the kids to school that way. But I don't know what we could do at the state level to, to do anything about that. All agree that what would help recruit and retain is a pay raise. School bus drivers with a CDL license make about $25,000 a year to start. Keysecker says they can make triple that in the private sector. 
there are so many manufacturers and companies that have come in uh, to this area, not just Berkeley County, but you know across the line in, in Maryland and Virginia, that we're all fighting for the same labor pool. Baber says pay raises are needed to be competitive, but the challenge goes beyond that. Uh, we are losing or have lost people to other industry. Um, another thing you have to keep in mind, too, is you know, we, we, we don't have people beating the door down to get in here anymore like we used to. Uh, it's, just a different, um, it's just a different time that we're in. Baber says a critical shortage of school bus mechanics continues as well. They're going to higher paid jobs. Um, uh, some mechanics, most counties or some counties want their mechanics to also drive school bus and you know some don't want to do that. And um, so we, we have them leaving left and right as well. Vacation does say in Raleigh County, some things are looking up. We do have two, uh, two classes going on right now and we will see uh, five or six folks come out of those classes uh, very soon and, and become bus drivers for us. So I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, things are looking looking up. Uh, we are our cancellations each week are trending downward. So um, you know there is some there is some light at the end of the tunnel, and I think we're we're working through it the best we can. I think we're fortunate in Raleigh County. Uh, we do have a big population, and uh, you know folks folks come in all the time and interview uh, and really just want to help out. So, you know, uh, um, it, it's, it'll work itself out, I think. Uh, like I said, I don't know what the answer is, but we're going to, we're going to keep recruiting and keep training and, uh, you know, see if we can overcome this problem. <laughs> For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yoey in Charleston. Recovery from the Kentucky floods of 2022 is continuing into its second year. Some of the expensive cleanup process has been completed, but it's left a lot of people unhappy. The Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting published a story about the process. It's titled, Invasive and Incomplete, How Flood Cleanup Left Eastern Kentucky Feeling Violated and Vulnerable. Jared Bennett was one of the reporters on the story. He recently spoke with Bill Burton from Louisville Public Media. Jared, who is Ash Britt and how are they involved in these lawsuits? Ash Britt is the Florida-based company that Kentucky hired to oversee the debris cleanup after the 2022 floods. And we found that Kentucky paid Ash Britt $170 million to do the work of cleaning up this debris. That's a lot more than they initially expected it to cost. And we found a lot of debris wasn't actually picked up. So a lot of locals are still complaining about piles of debris left behind to this day. And on top of that, Ashbrit is now facing three lawsuits that we know about. Two are accusing Ashbrit and its subcontractors of taking personal property, so that's trees and in one case, an entire mobile home without the homeowner's permission. And another lawsuit was filed by a subcontractor who worked for Ashbrit. And they say Ashbrit hasn't fully paid them for the work they did in Kentucky. They took personal property without permission. How did that happen? Well, in the case of Don and Melissa Young, who we wrote about in our radio documentary, Dirty Business, the flood had damaged their house, but the Youngs thought they could salvage it. And more importantly, they thought they could save some of their stuff inside. Uh, it was stuff like baby photos and videos and memorabilia and keepsakes that really couldn't be replaced. So they are gathering this up in the house. And one day when they're out, Ashford subcontractors demolished the home without their permission. And actually, they came when the home was half demolished and confronted uh, subcontractors. And they were basically told, this is our what we're here to do. This is our job. We also wrote about this guy, Keith Rose, who filed another lawsuit. And Rose was actually home when the workers came to his property. And this was almost two months after the flood. They cut these black walnut trees that he says were holding the creek bank in place and preventing erosion. And when Rose tried to get them to stop cutting these trees, the workers actually called the police. It's not really clear what happened next. Rose says he was tased and police jumped on his back, breaking his ribs and some bones in his hand before they took him to jail. The police say that Rose was threatening workers and is evading and resisting arrest. And he was actually charged with uh, a few counts of terroristic threatening and resisting arrest. 
And those charges are still pending in Letcher County. So what is Ash Britt's defense here? And are they the only defendants? No. In all cases, there are other companies named, including this one subcontractor for Ash Britt called NEV that is named in all three cases. NEV wouldn't answer our questions, but they did deny all the allegations. And then there's this other company, Thompson Consulting Services, who was hired to monitor the work. They're named as defendants in two cases, too. And the Rose case names the Fleming Neon police officers who he says tased and tackled him as defendants as well. So Ashbury is really well connected and they've hired a really well-known lawyer here in Kentucky. His name's Mitch Denham. Denham was Governor Andy Bashir's deputy attorney general back when Bashir was Kentucky's attorney general. Uh, And he was also on Bashir's transition team. Denham works now for McBrayer Law Firm. It's an affiliate of this expensive lobbying outfit that Ashbrit has hired to represent it here. Denham hasn't responded to my emails, but he did file a response on behalf of Ashbrit for two of these cases. In both cases, he argues Ashbrit is immune from liability because they're a government contractor. There's this legal theory called sovereign immunity that says you can't sue the government or its contractors. That's the argument that Ashbert's making here. And it's actually an argument that they've made in lawsuits after other disasters, and it's usually worked for them. That's the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting's Jared Bennett. Uh, Jared, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Many mountain communities are dealing with housing issues, whether from flooding, deteriorating structures, or a shortage of houses that people can actually afford. Advocates estimate that more than 100,000 affordable houses and apartments are needed across Virginia, and that need continues to grow. In the southwest Virginia town of Abingdon, 22 families recently got a home through a new housing development. Radio IQ's Roxy Todd reports. This time last year, Mary Lou Perez was focused on recovering her ability to walk after suffering a stroke. She spent months in the hospital, and her apartment didn't have access for her wheelchair. Then she got a spot at a new affordable housing development called Sweetbriar. And moving here, it's so quiet, stress-free. I just love it. She lives in a three-bedroom townhome with a huge back porch and a patio out front. When her grandkids visit, there's space for them to play outside and run inside. Because where my daughter lives is where I used to live. It's like a little matchbox. You know, it's one square. And they come here, they have all the space to run back and forth in that hallway. Perez's home was completed this year, one of 42 houses, all duplexes, built inside a neighborhood subdivision developed by a nonprofit called People Incorporated. Their chief development officer, Brian Ailey, says as soon as their final homes were built this fall, they had occupants. And we already have 22 units full with a waiting list of over 195 people on it. All units in their first phase also filled. They've been working to complete this project for 16 years. The first 20 homes were built in 2009, right in the middle of the mortgage crisis. So the second phase was pushed back. We tried on and off for about 10 years to find the financing for it. We couldn't do it. Finally, they were able to secure funding, partly through low-income tax credits. The homes at Sweetbriar are leased to people who make 60% of the median income for the area or less. For a family of four, that's about $45,000. Ailey says they're working with the local community service board to make sure people with mental illness or developmental disabilities are given priority on leasing. Several residents here have physical limitations. We have an accessible path that connects to community garden that's also wheelchair accessible. People Inc. has other housing projects across Virginia. Everywhere, they're seeing a need, and Ailey says he wishes they could build more. There's a lot of people out there that need the housing that simply don't have access to it, and the stock doesn't exist for them to have access to it. Mary Lou Perez says this home hasn't solved all her worries, but her life has been drastically changed since she moved in. This was a blessing. I wish we had more programs like this. Her kitchen is her favorite room in the house because there's plenty of space for her to cook while sitting in her wheelchair. With her walker, she shows me her second favorite room. This bathroom. I love it. Her grandkids love to play hide-and-seek in this bathroom. 
Down the hall, she's decorated one of the bedrooms with toys, kids' books, a small bed, and a tiny piano. Yeah, my granddaughter, she plays it all day when she's here. She's looking forward to hosting her family at Thanksgiving, especially having the noises of her grandbabies filling her house. In Abingdon, I'm Roxy Todd. November is National Novel Writing Month. All over the country, aspiring novelists have been writing their hearts out in hopes of pinning the next bestseller. But the hard part to getting a novel into a reader's hands may not be the writing. Author Russell Johnson makes his home in North Carolina, but his debut novel, Moonshine Messiah, is set in the West Virginia coalfields, where his parents are from. Producer Bill Lynch spoke with Johnson about writing and the long road to getting published. When did you take an interest in writing? Um, you know, I think I, I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. I double majored in English and history and minored in creative writing and toyed with the MFA route idea. While I knew that I wanted to be a writer, I was also pretty sure that I didn't want to be a starving writer. And so I uh, did the law school thing instead. But I, you know, promised myself that I was going to write a book by the time I was 30. And then I think maybe at like 33, I, I actually started you know, putting some words down. And then it was when um, my wife and I found out that we were about to have our second child. I told myself, you know, if I don't write a book before this baby's born, you know, life is just going to get in the way and I'm never going to do it. And so that's when I really got serious and got out my calendar and I, I marked off 100 days and I got up at 4.30 every morning and wrote a thousand words. You know, by the time I got to the end of it, you know, I had a, a, a book, sort of, but, you know, it was awful. <laughs> it was really bad. Um, but at that point, I knew I could do it. And I I caught the bug, you know, like I, I knew I was hooked. And so I've been, you know, diligently pursuing it, you know, ever since then. And uh, what happened to that that original book is the Moonshine Messiah. Is that that book? <laughs> no, that, that one uh, will never be seen. Um, my writing journey has been, I think, sort of a lot of what seemed like fast starts and then long delays. That first book was kind of a John Grisham-esque legal thriller. And so when I, I finished it, wrote it and rewrote it like three times and finally got to where I thought I was ready to query, you know, it's like, well, I'll just, I'll query John Grisham's agent. You know, why not just start right at the top? And so I just shot out an email with a query letter in the first chapter, you know, thought, you know, what the heck, and just kind of kept going about my day. And like an hour later, I had an email back from the agent's assistant saying, you know, we like the first chapter, send us the first 50 pages. And so I did that. And then it was like an hour later, like they said, oh, we like this too, send us the first 100 pages. And so I, I did that. And then I, maybe a day later, they said, okay, send us the whole manuscript. We're intrigued. I was like, wow, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get John Grisham's agent. This is easy. And, you know, of course they passed on the book. And now I spent probably a few years trying to get an agent for that book, rewriting the book, just never, never worked out with that one. And when I, I finally gave up on it and decided to try something new is when I wrote The Moonshine Messiah, you know, I, I sort of knew what I was doing a little bit by then. So, you know, I wrote that one in like six months and it got an agent like almost right away. And so I was like, oh, okay, now, now I've made it. This is, we're going to be cooking here. I wrote this book in 2016. So it was like six years, went through three agents and I ended up placing it myself um, with Shotgun Honey. Talk about putting together the book and coming up with the story. So originally I was, I was very influenced by Elmore Leonard. He's my favorite writer and I love the, the Raylan Givens character. It started as a short story where I just kind of had the idea of like trying to flip the gender and have a female Raylan Givens type character. Instead of putting it in Kentucky, I put it in Southern West Virginia because that's where my parents are from. I've grown up, you know, with kind of stories of life in the coal town and um, they grew up in McDowell County and Ward, West Virginia. And so I placed it there. It's a, uh, a mountaineer mystery. Were you always drawn to that particular genre? You know, I didn't realized how much I was until I started trying to write. And, and I kept kind of finding myself um, writing mysteries, even, even when I hadn't set out to. I've thought about this some, you know, when I was when I was very young, my family would go on a lot of car trips. You know, while my dad would drive, my mom would read to us. And she, I guess what she had available were Nancy Drew mysteries. And so maybe that just imprinted something there on me early on. Uh, when I set out to start writing, I, I really thought I'd do more kind of legal thrillers, which are, are in the mystery genre, but whatever reason, just kind of gravitated more towards crime fiction and traditional mysteries. As it's mentioned, it's a, a mountaineer mystery, which does suggest more than one. What else have you got? Did you have a sequel already planned? Yeah, yeah, the sequel is already written. Uh, it should come out probably May, June kind of time frame next year. And I'm working on um, 
the third book in the series, which I think is probably going to be the last book in this series, at least, you know, with Mary Beth as the main character. For you, what was the most difficult process of putting this book together? Uh, I would say the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> uh, the writing part is fun and um, revising is fun. Trying to get published is, is really is really hard. And the, the worst and rejections is fine. I can handle rejection. The worst part is long stretches of silence. You know, it's uh, sending things out and waiting to hear. That's to me is the most difficult part. The book is called The Moonshine Messiah, A Mountaineer Mystery. Russell, thank you very much. Thank you. Moonshine Messiah is available in paperback. You can find out more about Johnson on our website, wvpublic.org. We're hearing music recorded inside Free Pentecostal House of Prayer in Gray, Kentucky, where congregants handle serpents and drink poison as part of their worship services. When I first moved back to Appalachia in the early 2000s, I found a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington. Now, usually, when you hear about snake handling, it's in an exploitative way, like the villains in a pulpy story. But Salvation on Sand Mountain is more empathetic. The folks who handle snakes come across more like people you might know. And it turns out, they play a style of Appalachian music that's gone largely undocumented. That music is the subject of a podcast released in 2022 called Alabama Astronaut. Last year, reporter Zach Harold spoke with co-host Abe Partridge about how a project intended to document this music ended up being about a whole lot more. This is a podcast about songs. Songs of them that believe the signs. This is Alabama Astronaut. By the way, the hiss you're hearing in this clip is actually the rattlesnakes that were in boxes up behind the Bible stand. Their despair just called me in to try to ruin this service. I'll tell you this, whenever National Geographic's in there, they're hoping to God they bring out the snake. When I'm in there, I'm hoping to God they don't bring out the snake. <laughs> Those are some clips from Alabama Astronaut, one of the most engrossing podcasts I've heard in a long time. And I have the co-creator and subject of that podcast with me. Hey, Partridge, I don't want to spoil anything, but can you give us a brief introduction on how you became familiar with the world of snake handling churches? It, I guess it depends on how far we want to go back, but uh, I pastored in Middlesboro, Kentucky myself when I was uh, in my mid-20s. I went through a crisis of faith, I guess you could say, and I was in the process of leaving the church. And during that time, uh, I've, I met a guy by the name of Jamie Coots, who was pretty well known uh and the serpent handling faith. We probably had about a 30 or 45 minute conversation, but in that 30 or 45 minutes, it was a real striking conversation that I never forgot. And he gave me his phone number and actually, you know, told me, I think he knew that I was struggling. Well, I started playing songs and painting and stuff like that. And uh, I was touring on the West Coast with an artist by the name of Jerry Joseph and this other uh, Alabamian from about Birmingham named Will Stewart. And he had a song that he wrote called Rush Arbor. It had a line in it that it mentioned copperheads and the Holy Ghost. Mm. And uh, I was, thought that was odd. And I asked Will what it was about. And he's like, it's about a book I read called Salvation on Sand Mountain. I read it at the beginning of the pandemic. And guess who's in it? Jamie Coots. So I said, I'm going to go find this serpent handle in church, and I'm going to go. Well, I found a few, and at every one that I went to, I'd heard songs that I never knew, that I never heard before, and I had spent uh, a large portion of my life in church. Uh, for people that haven't heard the podcast, what, mm -hmm. what makes it special compared to church music they might be familiar with? It differs, number one, in the lyrical content, um, these people happen to believe a certain passage of Scripture that's found in the book of Mark, uh, chapter 16, and verses 
18 and 19. What it is, is it's, it draws from Jesus's last words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And the last things that he told his disciples was that there were five signs that were going to follow them that believe. And uh, very quickly, the five are uh, casting out devils, laying hands on the sick and they shall recover, speaking in tongues, they shall take up serpents, and then if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Now, there are hundreds of millions of Pentecostals that exist on planet Earth, and nearly all of those Pentecostals will do three of those signs, which is that speaking in tongues, the, they profess to cast out devils, and they profess to lay hands on the sick, and then they recover. But outside of these few believers, um, I don't, I'm not aware of any other ones in the world where they literally take up serpents and literally, if they drink any deadly thing, if they consume a poison, that it does not hurt them. So whenever you hear a song that references those, you know that it had to originate within this sect of believers because there is literally no other sect of believers on planet Earth that falls under the realm of Christianity that believe these Heal things. The sick and cast the devil out. I'll take up serpents, drink the poison, dance and sing and shout. I believe in the word of Jesus Christ just like you told. The musical style is also unique. How would you describe that? Dennis Covington wrote the book Salvation on Sound Mountain. He described it as a mixture of Salvation Army and Acid Rock. Yeah, and then other people have called it rockabilly, uh, you know, rock and roll, rock and roll sacred music. Um, there, I, I don't. I mean, I call it, I call it uh, serpent, ha- serpent handling gospel music. Is I, I don't, uh, but you know, they just call it music. So how is this tradition being passed down? Oh, it's just uh, it's the same way that music was passed down for all the centuries before uh, men that did not have access to means of recording. So person to person, church to church. Um, I have yet to meet a serpent handling musician that was trained uh, or had any type of formal training in music. They, they passed down both the... Uh, the songs and the style of their playing, uh, I guess you would say, orally. But you've got churches, you know, all the way from Alabama up, up into West Virginia. It's a pretty big swath of territory. Are the song the songs are getting passed from church to church? Uh, I don't know. Are they visiting one another and passing along songs? Like, how does that cultural exchange happen? The serpent handlers know each other. They often attend each other's. They have they some sometimes they have special meetings like they call them homecomings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have meetings called revivals, and people will travel from the other churches to uh, to attend. But yeah, you can. Um, I've actually been in services before where if you listen to the audio, if I if I were to give you the audio recording of the service you would uh, assume that there was only one guitar player. But in actuality, there were multiple guitar players that they, they, they passed the guitar along, you know, as each one feels led. But they play the same style because they all, it, all, it all derives from their, their sacred music. Has there been a change over the years in the kind of music that the snake handling churches are playing, or or has it maintained some kind of consistency? There have been some few. I would I wouldn't call them changes. I would call them tweaks with the in, with the introduction of electric instruments. There were there was a you know uh, probably in the sixties, uh, but before that even they they were playing acoustic instruments and they were playing the same type of songs that they're actually playing now. I mean, it's still actively right now in 2022 being passed down. And I've got, I've got uh, hundreds of hours of recordings that, that, uh, that, that show, uh, that show this kind of music being played back into the fifties. It seems the amount of 
like the depth that you've gone into all this uh is it all just about the music or is there something else behind it too so it's always been music first that was my that was my goal but i mean i will tell you this if it was just about the music i wouldn't still be going i've already got hundreds of hours of of recordings i could put a record out but two weeks ago i was still there it's it's actually helped rekindle my own faith i wouldn't say i would like to necessarily line out what that looks like and and you know i'm i'm not going to start picking up snakes I have witnessed things in the moment they felt absolutely supernatural. So what are you, you've got the recordings. Uh, What's the plan uh, to present those to the public? We have released the Coots Duo album, which is an album that we recorded inside of the Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus' name in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, which is Jamie Coots' old church uh, with his son, Cody, and his wife, Cassie. Cody happens to be a fourth-generation serpent handler, a serpent handling preacher, and songwriter. So so we've recorded uh, music with them, and we've already put that out on our website. It's already available for download. The, the goal in mind is to create a documentary record that is captured within the church but uh, now we just uh, need to go through and I need to find the most powerful moments mm-hmm. and, and get these things mixed and mastered, which I do not personally have the skills to do. And uh, so that's where we're at right now. And let me tell you, when it gets done, it is going to blow your mind because it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's so good. This is one of the most compelling podcasts I've heard in a long time. It's Thank it you, it gives a a peek into a side of American culture that I don't think a whole lot of people have thought about. No. Uh, a lot of people don't even know exists. Right. And it handles it with such respect and like an apparent love of the subject matter. Yeah. It's not that it's it's not hard to treat them with respect. It's not hard. But it ne- it never gets done. I think what the overall theme is, is that there's a lot of people in this world. And like Dr. Hood said in the podcast, if we're going to have diversity in this country, then it requires a respect. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Zach. You can find Alabama Astronaut wherever you find podcasts. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Wednesday, John Blissard, Little David, and Christian Lopez. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.